Hey guys, this is Amber Dunn with Amber Dunn Ministries Podcast. You don't want to miss some of the stuff we're going to talk about. I'm coming at you live from my bedroom in Lufkin, Texas. That is right. Big L represent. Listen to this music to start you off with some funky music. Let's go. Okay, guys. Hey, I have my friend Julie here with me. We're going to be asking some questions. I said we're like I'm multiple people, but um, <laughs> I'm going to be asking some questions and then we're going to probably ask each other some questions as well, Julie and I. Um, Julie, thank you for... I don't want to say hopping on like every other white female that uh, talks <laughs> about. Hopping on in my living room. <laughs> we're just hopping on in her, we're in her living room today and it's very chill, very, um, I'm able to breathe in here and feel just like a zen almost, if you will. Um, and so I'm going to be asking some questions today that are maybe difficult in nature, but I feel um, she has the expertise to, to talk about these things. And so this is one person's um, view on these things and, and I hope to have more people in the mental health field come on here and and discuss these things but I highly respect your opinion and want to hear because you're very um, I don't even say know if I would say blunt but to the point to the point and truthful and you that. don't hold back so I try not to that's what we need more of in the mental health field right is <laughs> I try not to <laughs> well you know <laughs> I mean you you can't because here's the thing is we know something's wrong with the current model we'll get into that more but we know something's wrong and um, through maybe your own experiences, my own, or maybe even experiences of loved ones, we really need to start talking about some of the issues and how we can mitigate those because we know something is not okay with the current model of mental health in America. We know we actually see that people are getting sicker with more treatment, and you would think it would be quite the opposite, right? More treatment and whether medicinal in nature or through counseling or whatever, we would think that these approaches you would actually see a decline mm-hmm. in mental health um, mental illnesses and mental health issues that we have right we, we don't see that according to data and I'll find some fun studies on here so first I just want to ask uh, what is your background in mental health and your education pertaining to the mental health field well uh, for starters uh, I guess my background in mental health would be that I've always had it. (laughs) I've always had issues regarding it. So like, you know, like hands-on experience, I I would say. Um, And I feel like having that hands-on experience at a very young age, even with my family telling me this and like, you know, reassuring this, like, I've always wanted to help people at a very young age because I never wanted other people to feel the same way that I felt. Like, the way I felt was so bad at such a young age that it made me want to help others to not have to go through that same thing. Yeah. Because it hurt. It, like, it was such a mental pain that turned physical that it presented itself in my body every single day as a child. Mm -hmm. And so, whenever I got older, I decided to go into accounting at first because that was the status quo that my parents were like (laughs) numbers boring yeah (laughs) yeah they were just like that they were uh very strict with like definitely get a good job and you know don't go after something you enjoy because something you enjoy is probably not going to pay the bills um but I decided to eventually change over from accounting to psychology because, I don't know, I've always just said, like, hey, if accounting doesn't work, you know, therapy would be okay. I could deal with therapy. It, and not only could I deal with therapy, it, it circled back around to, again, I don't want others to go through that same thing that I went through. Right. When you go through that for so long, it's just kind of like you become desperate but not only desperate for yourself but desperate for others because it's like you're telling me that like these things have existed for however long it's been and we're still at this point in the 21st century with technological advances yeah like we should know more about the brain yeah 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 and it shouldn't be as stigmatized and it should be further progressed medicinally and treatment wise than it is right now um, so, yeah, 
So you've got your, did you get your BA in, in psychology? Yeah, BA in psychology. Okay, nice. And you've been doing this for how long now? Uh, um, about two-ish years. Okay, awesome. So um, I think our generation honestly has a lot to offer. We're a huge asset to mm-hmm. the mental health community because we, <laughs> by and large, are the most over-medicated generation, I believe, of, of ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we know what that's, what that's like. And again, this is not an anti-medication kind of you know attack or like type of episode for this Um, but um, but we know by and large it doesn't help uh, the large majority now you talked about a stigma do you feel because you've talked about being an empath we'll talk about that in a little while and what that means to you and what that means and really in general but do you feel like the stigma by and large comes from lay people or that it comes from people within the field itself because I know what I think. I think you know what I think <laughs> and what I believe because I've seen it and lived it. But what do you think from your perspective? Do you see a large stigma within the field that keeps people from maybe seeking help? Oh, for sure. There is 100% always going to be a stigma whenever it comes to mental health professionals and them seeking help because it's kind of like people view us as the help. So it's like... They don't, I, I guess they view us as kind of like the top tier boss. And they're like, oh, well, they, we go to you for all the answers. So why can't, why do you, how, how do you have all of these problems? Or why do you have all these problems? Or how can you not just fix them yourself and stuff like that? Um, right. It's very stigmatized in society because it's like, we should be able to fix ourselves. But in reality, that's not how... <laughs> any of that works you can't be your own therapist right so (laughs) well there's a there's a set of bias there too and then when we're in the midst of something we really can't i mentioned that in my last episode is you can't really clearly see things from from a point of maybe hurt or trauma or like you can't see the full scope so not while you're inside of it not while you're inside of it and it's not to minimize because it's very real and it's very tangible and it's very um, very legitimate and, and should be legitimized but that's like being inside of a tornado and like you can't see how much damage is being caused to a whole city from being inside of a tornado you can only see right. the freaking you know pieces of, of that storm. yeah like yeah. the pieces of wood hurling at your face like that's all you're focused <laughs> on and then when you get out of it if you get out of it um, then you see the damage around you it's the same kind of concept now you have me thinking about uh, a final destination, and I feel oh, like God. I feel like wood's just gonna splinter off in my eye uh, as I'm driving don't down the road. <laughs> thank you for that, because we have a lot of log trucks in, in East Texas, so thank you for that. Um, I will, my OCD will latch onto that, and I will. <laughs> I will You're be welcome. Very, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, you just I've been re-traumatized. So, um, but no. Um, so you think there is a stigma within the field to seek that help because we're supposed to be the ones that help others. Have you seen within your own life a stigma towards you as a patient who has a, a BA in psychology? Have you ever seen that stigma if you've ever needed to go get help personally? And then once you shared that you do have a BA in psychology, have you ever had that happen where maybe they backed down and were like, hold up, wait, this chick actually knows maybe something about what she's talking about? I think we well, have had a, a being a patient, yes, I have experienced plenty of that. Um, with being a patient and having that kind of knowledge behind me, I've occurred almost near-death experience um, just from being almost mismedicated and almost overdosed because of being mismedicated. Um, But the second that I questioned her or, like, gave her any kind of opposition, she was like, thrown off whenever I told her about like my education behind it and she was like oh like you could see like the withdrawal even even though it was like the slightest like to most people you wouldn't be able to tell like that withdrawal (laughs) you're an empath though so you probably yeah it was very hyper well like I was hyper aware because it's my life right right. it's my life at stake right I mean when you're talking to somebody, you're supposed to, for one, you're supposed to trust your doctor. 
right? To not kill you. That's like, you know, the, the <laughs> yeah, first thing. The first do no harm. Yeah. yeah first right? thing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to be just a little hypersensitive <laughs> towards my doctor whenever they're trying to prescribe me two antidepressants on top of each other, which mm-hmm. anyone with any kind of psychological knowledge or back chance. Yes. Serotonin syndrome, fun. I've been through that. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, and uh, you want me to. To kill myself, why? Um, so you're trying to, you're at this point of utter desperation and maybe hopelessness at this point, and you're looking for somebody to trust, but they don't even know about the meds they're prescribing. And so they're giving you two meds that, if you guys don't know, if you take two SSRIs, you have to be very, very, very careful um, that you don't develop serotonin syndrome. And in, in, uh, in some cases, it leads to death. I mean, it's very uncomfortable. Um, I was fortunate enough when I went through serotonin syndrome to go to um, almost like an urgent doc here, um, a clinic, and then um, we also called the ER and they confirmed the exact same thing was happening and they said to stop the drugs immediately. Um, That was Boost Bar and Paxil. Um, And I had also been on other medications, SSRIs, prior to that. Um, It literally took a dose of Paxil and Boost Bar for me to go into serotonin syndrome because we didn't have a washout period before the other SSRIs that were thrown in the mix. So my brain never had time to regulate back to homeostasis to um, have that period of washout. So, but as a patient, you feel like, uh, so, so this is what I wanna, wanna kinda ask, like to delve in deeper, is I feel like there's, even for people in the, in the field, which I'm going into the field, right, as a psych major as well, so I can't say I'm in the field yet, but I'm going into it, I feel like there's an us versus them mentality. So it's like you're a psychiatrist or a psychologist and there's a patient. So our word as a psychologist or psychiatrist is gonna stand up in any court of law, right, against a patient. So you basically lose all validity as a patient. I know what this feels like. You lose all validity of yourself and identity and mm-hmm. being like, a how human. Can, how is it that somebody else who isn't me can vouch for me legally doesn't, more and who doesn't than, know you yeah, for the majority you. of your life has not known but you. But I myself with the education that I have can't vouch for myself in a court of law. Exactly. And so they often threaten in inpatient facilities, we'll get into this more, but even if you go voluntarily, they will threaten that they'll, you know, talk to the judge and bring in the court. And if you don't know your rights, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. You don't know your rights and you're already terrified and you're being manipulated in such a way and we can get into that more. But that happened to me. I was manipulated into not knowing my rights. I didn't know. I, I felt like, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll comply. I'll comply. I'll be a good patient. I'll be a good patient. Because I never questioned a doctor once. But when you start to question and say, this doesn't feel good, what do they do? They treat us differently as patients. So my concern for people in the mental health field is because there's this us versus them mentality that's been created within the field itself, is that if you're a psychiatrist or psychologist and you go to get help, you're now not really that psychologist or psychiatrist anymore you're on the them side not the yeah. us side and you're lumped into this category of it's our word against yours like, but do you see it yes. personally do you see it have you seen it in the field where it's doctors over here and psychologists counselors lpcs whatever and then it's the patients like oh they're just crazy they're all crazy and it's our word against theirs who, they're going to believe us because we have letters behind our name and we've oh, been to sure. Ivy League schools or for some people they've been to Ivy League schools and they'll listen to someone who's been to Cornell versus somebody who's oh, for been sure. to SFA versus you know what I'm saying? Oh so, yes, and so, especially when it comes to lower income like right. whenever lower income seeks like mental health like help it is way too common that in cases where legal action takes cases um it's like the doctor turns on the patient and uses their income against them and because there's no recordings or any factual, you know, backups of anything else, it's right. kind of like it puts the patient in this horrible position because it's like they're stigmatized because of their income. Or even I've seen it points gender as well. Uh, yeah, or uh, sexuality, or religion, or, uh, race. I mean, but for me as a white woman, I've seen how I was treated by m- particularly male um, practitioners. Was it was all in my head? I was too emotional. Yeah. Um. It was. It, 
they didn't even think to check my hormone levels or you know run labs or yeah. anything like that all they wanted to do was it's your disease honey and you're sick like you know what I'm saying like very derogatory very I hate minimizing very um, they never thought for a minute that it could be their treatment that was actually causing me to get sicker or yeah. to be sick chronically in the first place so you come in with acute issues like I did with panic disorder or panic attacks after about a year of having a wreck, I think I had late onset, you know, PTSD that I didn't realize. And so um, that's why still to this day, I think my dissociation gets worse in the car because I was in a, a wreck that really should have killed me, but I came out with a scratch and a bruise and um, I still have pictures of it to post and they're, they're really bad. The truck was totaled and um, it was just, yeah, trauma. it reminds you that life is so short. I realized it, it, it well, I guess I was about 21 then I realized that I could die it wasn't I'm scared my family's gonna die anymore which is largely in part what my anxiety was focused around was death and imminent danger and I was scared anytime I heard an ambulance that it was my family and I would run to the door and call them profusely yeah. with my OCD as a compulsion to check on them check check, <coughs> check and I just knew it was gonna be them dead yeah. but once I got in a wreck it was I could die You're like I, oh wow yes you were face to face with your own mortality my own mortality I think that's often what we focus on in our society is mortality. The fact that yeah, we're going sure. to die and we have extreme fear. Well, that's because it. that's literally the whole point of us being alive. Us to right. be alive is to die. This right. is literally just a checkpoint to get through towards the end. And I think that's traumatizing for a lot of people to oh, even for think sure. about. There have been many people I've talked to about death, and they'll say, "Can we stop talking about this? It's making me uncomfortable." And it's like, well. Sometimes you have to find comfort in the uncomfortable. And that's honestly kind of what I talked about in the last um, episode was, uh, for me and my beliefs, is that God doesn't allow us, like, it's, it's not going to be a perfect life, and he never promised it's going to be easy. For me, I, I believe that we actually grow within the discomfort if we press into that. We can't well, that's always the whole, run from Yeah, it, that's the whole right? point of the whole, like, all of this. Is it's a metamorphosis. Yes, yeah. we go through life, the whole point of going through life is to grow and change, and to evolve, and to learn lessons, and to face hardships, and the whole nine yards. If life were completely easy and handed over, and like, you know, nothing bad ever happened to you, there's literally, and you know, I hate to say it in this light, but there's no point in you being alive. Right. This point in being alive is to obtain that knowledge to face whatever lies beyond death right that's what this whole point is right and all people see it in different um perspectives mm -hmm. right and so and then faith gets involved and things like that for for many people um and i believe uh, psycho on a psycho spiritual level there are many things that also kind of oh, can yeah. play into our mental health as well um, what, so I think we've talked about, let's see, we talked about the stigma within the field. What is something, and I'll stick more to the script because I got off there a little bit, but what is something you wish, uh, or you wish you could change, sorry, or that you know needs to be changed within the current model in the United States? Because we're constantly looking for, I'll add on to that, a quick fix, a quick solution. And we simply know, as being patients ourselves, there is no such thing as a quick fix. Mm -hmm not in the long term it doesn't really pan out in the long term yeah you may get a quick fix now but does that really help later on yeah you know so what do you think again i'll say this what is something you wish you could change or that you know needs to change within the current mental health field model like in short like all of it <laughs> like i don't know it needs um, a rebirth Yes, it definitely yeah. needs a flip like a pancake. Um, <laughs> it better I mean, be a good pancake and have some good stuff exact, on it. Exactly, yeah, yeah. like the mixture better and not be cheap. Like you can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Add some water to that pancake mix, baby, and we got exactly, us a, like, a good mental I health care system. I, I can't with this anymore. <laughs> um, but I definitely believe that there needs to be more people in the field doing it for the cause alone rather than for whatever other reason they have in their hearts to change like money money money, money. well money <laughs> but it's like 
or a feeling of feeling like a good person for helping. Maybe egoistic. Yeah. I guess in a sense. Yeah. I don't know, but like, there's way too many people in the field doing it for the wrong reasons, and it's doing nothing but hurting the patients, and then making you look dumb whenever a patient knows something like you do. <laughs> And then they take that often as a threat. And I don't want to speak to all doctors, but the ones with the God complex will speak oh, to them. Oh, for sure. Those of you with the God complex, we see you. We hear you. We love you. We love you, but that's a deep psychological issue you got to get worked on. Exactly. So you should probably seek help because <laughs> that does project on patients, and then it really devalues their self-worth. Exactly. Right? And there's exactly. their human experience. So to the point to where they honestly feel like animals at times, and they're lesser than lesser than human. To yep. be honest, in my own experience. Well, it's because that's just, like, the evolution of mental health over the decades. Like, there was a time where we were viewed as animals. Like, lit- like yeah. I'm not even yeah. joking. Like, literal animals. Like, people who had mental health issues, like yeah. we do today, were caged up in chains. Yes. And, like, thrown against walls and to beds and things. And then, like, treated like... I, I would say like animals, but maybe even at that point, animals got better treatment, de- depending on the time period. I, I would agree with you. Um, it was very sadistic. It, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just kind of like we're to the point where it's like, yeah, we're 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 getting there, but it's like trying to essentially, we have gotten ourselves stuck so deeply in the sand pit of like toxic torture of mm-hmm. mental health mm-hmm. that it's like over time now over generations it's like we're one step further out of the the sand pit that we're stuck in generation wise and so it's just kind of like at this point it's like yeah we're like maybe our toes to yeah essentially yeah. like we're trying like to just get unstuck out of like that sand pit right and so like now it's kind of like oh, like at first our, our whole body was stuck in it and now, at this point, at this generation, it's like maybe our foot's stuck in it. And so the next right. generation, maybe their toe will be stuck in it. And hopefully, at some point, nobody's anything will be stuck in the sand pit. And the sand pit will be far away from us. Right. And one could hope. And I didn't really want to go here, but because it's uncomfortable, I'm going to go there. Because I like to stir up a little bit of comfort um, in the uncomfort. thought in people and be thought-provoking. Mm-hmm. and. I am not by any means against white males, okay? <laughs> People would say white cisgender males. <laughs> like, well, here we go. But here we we're gonna go here. So white white males in particular, when I think about the history of psychology and psychiatry itself, mm-hmm. it was largely we can look at Freud as an example. I compare Freud to psychology as I compare Harvey Weinstein, uh, Weinstein to Hollywood. So the 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 great perversion of of the system, and mm-hmm. so you look at a lot of these men who were very prominent in the field per se when it started off in the birth of psychology and psychiatry and later on you heard some women's voices and now today you hear even more women's voices in the field but i almost feel as if it's always been an uneven playing field and so what i mean by that is it was a bunch of really kind of sketchy old white dudes that wrote a lot of this stuff and came up with these ideologies that weren't necessarily true and if you guys want to look into the Kellogg brothers that was very interesting what did they they did um correct me if I'm wrong but do you remember this story you may not so from what I've heard yes no yay no from what I've heard they had a sanitarium so like an insane asylum right yeah and they were trying to get um young uh, boys prepubescent boys whatever hit it some hitting puberty uh, I would assume closer to puberty but to um, stop masturbating. And so one of their things was they were going to come up with a cure for this masturbation issue, right? It was, oh, yes. oh, it's so bad to masturbate. So what they would go, we're going to go there, guys, because it's uncomfortable. But, um, <laughs> but what they would do was they were trying out these essentially biscuits, right, that they would make and they would try to see uh, this, this experiment. And these were the people who owned it. They probably should have been patients in there. Um, but these were the people in charge of the sanitarium, right? And they were trying to figure out if this would minimize the, the, their control group, right? Take their control group that wasn't eating this and they were still masturbating and take their, their, um, their uh, group they had, the experimental group, and add this variable in of like these biscuits. Mm-hmm. Come to find out, 
it didn't do anything. They were still masturbating. It really upset them because I guess in society at that time it was like a no-no. And so what they ended up doing was... Wow, I could have told you that one. Yeah, it broke off into flakes and somebody had sugar, I guess, and it became Kellogg's, right? So the Kellogg brothers, um, go look into it. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but Mm -hmm. they were trying to get boys to stop masturbating. And so what did that end up doing? It, It was a pseudoscience. Yeah. And this is what we hear oftentimes in psychology and psychiatry is there's no scientific evidence in this field mm-hmm. that proves, uh, you may disagree with this, but for me, chemical imbalance theory. It's just a theory still to this day. There's not one single study yeah. that shows it's strictly chemical imbalance because we can't measure past the blood-brain barrier. We know that some things in nature are chemical. I'm going to kind of stay away from that in this topic, but um, I can talk about that on another episode. But even in recent studies we've shown that this just isn't the case there's there's so many issues that plague the human mind like the gut chronic inflammation things like that but I just I just kind of wonder who was in charge of coming up with this pseudoscience you know and it was a bunch of Sigmund Freud (laughs) which many don't even hold valid anymore but to me he was very very overtly sexual and very overtly um very overtly sounded like a pedophile, in my opinion. Now, sorry, Sigmund, wherever you are in the universe. R.I.P. <laughs> R.I.P. Sigmund. We don't want any more of that. But um, there were some things he said that were eh, but then other things like because I don't have a a guy's private part that I'm a penis. I mean, that there's I a reason that like I'm jealous I, and I and like not to stir off on conversations. Oh, here, let's start. Like, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it, boo. Come on. When it comes to Sigmund Freud, I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> I'm going to grab some water while you're doing that. You're fine. Talk. Um, whenever it comes to Sigmund Freud, I just love how... <laughs> A TV. <laughs> <laughs> He's always seen as, like, the face... Okay, like, for example, uh, we'll do a little <laughs> tiny experiment. Um, Let's go. How, when you think of therapy, like, close your eyes and think of therapy, mm-hmm. what do you view? I mean, I've used some peace in my life, but are you talking about, am I thinking about Sigmund? Because I really don't want to think about... When you think of, like, going to get help, what do you view? What, what do, you do I view? What do you actual see? progress is what not I like, hope. Is that not what you're like asking? the actual help itself. Like, when you go to get help, like, for example... Like, idealistically? Um, when you view, like, a therapist-patient relationship... Right. What do you see, like, a picture of? How it is or how it should be? Physically, how it is. How it is now, with the current model. What have I seen, is what you're asking. Yes, like, what does it physically look like? Um, a lot of psychoanalysis, is this helping? Um, a lot of things that are true about myself, but then a lot of things they missed the mark on, and kind of... I would say prematurely. Well, yes, but like, am I still not answering it right? What I'm trying to get at is like, <laughs> it's it's not. You're trying to take it like way deeper than it was supposed to be. <laughs> that's, but that's it's fine. Name. Um, <laughs> so the way that a lot of people view therapy, whenever they like think of therapy, they're like, oh, when someone goes and gets help, they just view somebody on a couch talking to a man. And they're like, and, and you're holding does, a pillow tightly. And they're like <laughs> talking about like, I don't know, anything that they're feeling or going through or dreaming about. And there's a man that says, and how does that make you feel? Oh, okay, like, okay. So we're taking it back to that. I understand. Yes. I'm on the same page now. So yeah, that's what they most people view. Think. Yeah, they view that as like the basis of like all therapy. When they think of therapy, they're like, that's therapy. And when in reality that concept all came up because of Sigmund Freud and it's like Thanks, Freud. Sigmund Freud a lot of people view him as so much more important than he is and I'm sorry to say it like that but anyone who looks at it realistically knows that he's just he was just a stepping stone in like so the further really advancement forget about <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. like there were some things like he—it was like this, just the inkling he was a psychotherapy itself. Yeah, like yeah. he had the idea, he had the concept, but like mm, not any of the details. He thought too deep in a sexual sense. Mm, yeah, that was very, very odd. Like uh, there was a lot of other people that were like, "I like it," 
but it needs a little bit of um, <laughs> some something something else. I don't know what if there's something about it. A little less sex. <laughs> No less perverted sex. Just a little um, bit. Like, I don't know. So if he were a modern day mm. mind in the psychological field. He'd probably field, be in jail. He'd be in jail for what? For what? Uh, only, only he would know that. <laughs> probably. Or um, some, like I said, Harvey Weinstein. That's who I compare him to. Yeah. He literally looks like the face of Harvey Weinstein. If I were to think of a uh, current day um, person who is a big wheel in Hollywood, right? I, yeah. I think of him a lot in the same essence. So mm-hmm. he had some interesting ideas. I'm sure Harvey Weinstein did too, but how did all those women feel that he had, you know, sexually molested mm-hmm. and raped and and um, really used for further gain? So I can't say what old Freudy boy was doing, but I just know that he would be labeled a, an extreme pervert, an extremist. Not a nice guy. Not a nice guy. Not a nice so, guy. No. So we have to look back at the basis and say that there's something fundamentally wrong there. Yeah. There were some good ideas, and theories are only theories, right? Mm, yeah. Until theories they become theories. proven. And, and there's not one form we know of psychotherapy that by itself really has ever proven to be the model, the end-all, be-all, right? Yeah, no, there isn't any. There's mixtures, right, that you yeah. can do, and it's patient-oriented, and it's individualized is the approach. So, moving on from our, this is not an anti-man, like a man-hate you know, thing. We both have boyfriends. We, you know, the men folk are great. But um, back in that day, I think that's something we need to consider is where was the female um, mind back in that day where we could kind of share some of our thoughts as to what was going on too. And like I said, later on, women did have more of a prominent voice, but it was a cultural thing and societal role and all that fun stuff. They were lucky if they could even say hello. And then women of color couldn't really. Yeah, double. They didn't even have a voice. Double double whammy. Double whammy, double nope. Sorry about you, going about your business is how it really was in the day. So, do not pass go, do not collect $200. I said that in my last episode. What the heck? <laughs> High five. Oh, yeah, that was a hard slap right there. I hope that echoed in the microphone. Um, <laughs> so, what is your stance on inpatient care in America? Now, this doesn't mean she's saying that it doesn't help, okay? But what is your stance from maybe your own experience or people who you actually love? who have been in this, or even people you've heard of, their experience. I know I've shared my story with you mm-hmm. in depth, in depth, <laughs> to where it's like, I need to pay her more money. I need to pay her some money for being my counselor. I need to pay my psychiatrist more money because she gets a lot of texts and emails like, that woman does not make what she's worth because she has been, no, this woman does not make enough oh, is all I got to say. I was like, is there, the other day I was joking, I was like, Mom, is there just some way she deserves more money? Man, I just need to send her a whole check. That's illegal, by the way. But I just need to send her this check for like thousands of dollars and be like, that's for all those texts and emails you had to receive. <laughs> so, so it's extra just compensation. We're a little extra compensation. Is there a legal loophole I can look through to actually give her the compensation monetarily that she deserves? Because she is very underpaid, I think, for what she does. And I'm probably not the only patient that does it. I'm a little weird and different, but I think there's a lot of patients actually like that. And it's, you know, it's actually really sad. Um, But um, jokes aside, because I like to pick on myself, what is your stance on inpatient care and what have you heard about it? Um, Well, personally, I have never been inpatient before. Mm -hmm. Never had that opportunity. (laughs) It's an opportunity here in America. Whatever you would consider it to be. Right. Um, I have heard, obviously, your story. Fun times. In depth. And I also have a cousin who also has gone through it. And um, her experience was also pretty traumatic as well. Um, And based on just what I've heard, it just seems that, like, it just doesn't help. Like, it's not serving the purpose that it's created for. And it seems to be doing more harm than it is doing good. So, like, that's led me to be like, hmm, you know, I might not feel good mentally, but, like, at least I am in my home. And you're not locked in four walls. Yeah. With, like, like no social media and treated like an animal being poked and prodded every so often. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. Um, 
So for some people I've seen it help. It's been a not even a handful to be honest. Now it depends on where you go to. I realize this is very it's it's very disproportionate as far as the help. We look at because we're in deep east Texas, we really don't have that much help. Yeah. Um and so down the road from here, excuse me, down the road from here, I was very injured by people I put my trust in. Not my hope, but my trust. And um and suffered largely mentally and, and physically and psychologically at their um, at their hands, right? Um, it's really sad when you're in a mental hospital and you can remember, I just remember the screams of people who were coming in there who were even sicker than I was, and I'll never forget those screams. And you know the first thought that I had was, I just want to kill myself, I'm done with all this. Yeah. That was my first thought, my mind kept going to death, I just want to kill myself. And, and what's um, really sad is that, like, in that moment, you probably didn't want to die. You just wanted it to stop. Right. That the medications have brought on through mm-hmm. oxygenesis, right? I had never in 22 years felt suicidal in my life. And then I took a benzo and then an antidepressant. And really, even with That'll the first couple of benzos that I took, uh, Ativan, uh, with the first couple of Ativan that I took at a low dose, I started um, having not only suicidal ideations, but also homicidal ideations. And that scared the living crap out of me because I'm a very gentle person. And um, I didn't know what to do with those thoughts. Um, it was very disconcerting, very, it made me very disturbed inside and unsettled. And um, then they put you on more things that make reality not look real. So when you go inpatient, you're typically at a very chronically ill point, not always, but typically um, to where by that time, you can't really sign anything that says, even when you go voluntarily, like I did the four times, you can't sign anything that says, I don't want to take this again, because you're kind of out of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So are you really an adult at that point? I One hospital told my parents, and I was like strung out on whatever they had me on. They had put me on Haldol, and I was drooling, and, and didn't know where I was, and went into a psychosis. Um, after rapid cycling and it was just very very interesting I don't remember I just I do remember bits and pieces of hallucinating and and it was very physically painful but I remember they had a come to Jesus meeting so to speak and and they said well she's an adult and my parents said hold up now stop saying that like do you see what you've done to her she's drooling she doesn't even know who she is or where she is I wouldn't care if somebody were 70 years old in Mm -hmm. here when they cannot control their own mind or what's going on with their own reality, they're no longer able to function as an adult. To they're make, no longer able to like talk for themselves. Your frontal lobe is so intoxicated, Branded. inebriated, yeah. almost essentially, it's it's shut down in a way where you can't make good choices. You can't say like, please stop, please stop. So is there really consent? Is there informed consent? I would venture to say the large majority of the time there is no such thing as informed consent in America now. The good doctors, and I'm speaking to you good doctors, we know you use informed consent. Like if you start having suicidal thoughts, this is normal for this, this and this and this. And just tell us, just be honest with us as to what we can expect if we do start to have the side effects that are more on the negative side that could you know, cause us to harm ourselves or someone else and what our family should look for in changes of behavior and things like that. We really need to know those things as patients, okay? And that's something I really um, want others to know about, not to scare them, but if they do decide the medicinal approach to truly know what informed consent is and know what these drugs can do when they alter your mind. So if I would have been told this, you know what I was actually told in my own hometown was, oh, Amber, don't read the side effects. You read them, you'll feel every single thing on there. So that was my belief system was I don't question a doctor. It's disrespectful. We didn't worship doctors but by any means, but it was I trust a doctor. They've gone to school. I haven't. They know everything about what there is to be a doctor, which most of these people prescribing, and we know um, psychotropic medications are actually primary care physicians. So they're not in a specialty field, right? Yeah. And so that often um, is a huge issue. But then even psychiatrically, Um, A lot of psychiatrists know how to put people on the drug, but they don't actually see the scientific proof. 
based on any test that shows that their patient is getting better. They just go based on a list of symptoms and then look at the DSM-5 and it's just a, a bunch of You're like puzzle piecing it together. Puzzle piecing together. It's not really scientific where you can look at it like you can with, you know, an Anything EEG else? or EC, EKG or whatever yeah. and you can actually piece together this patient on an EEG is having a seizure here or mm -hmm. this person here is having um you know, AFib on their EKG here. So there's no actual proof there to see anything um, besides going on their, their word. And so I think we tend to clump and lump people together who display maybe psychotic symptoms as all having a psychotic disorder. And that's not always the case. When you are very sick, your body sending signals to the brain that's saying, help, I'm sick, like you're your um, HPA axis is all off, you know, your hormones are all out of whack. Um, you're all over the place. There's so many things that could be indicative of these issues. And so, um, yeah, you could exhibit um, some psychotic features and not be actually psychotic at all. Mm -hmm. But we tend to want to put labels on things. And I, I think I want to come back around full circle to inpatient care often leaves patients, and I can speak from a patient's perspective. I don't think I mentioned this earlier. I meant to when patients are saying help me to each other and they're helping each other more than the doctors are and they're saying hey like I would say are you feeling any better no they won't listen to me though when you're being told by other patients and and now if you hear a psychiatrist side they'd say well that's their illness speaking they're just old old Johnny boys just a little you know he's out there he's schizophrenic yeah. and he's got that you know no these patients are desperately crying out please help me nobody will listen to me and that is something I hear so often is nobody hears me nobody is listening and I will tell you from that point of view you feel so violated especially when they pump you full of drugs you can't think for yourself mm -hmm. anymore you've lost all sense of self you've lost your relationship you feel like with God to uh, connect with God whoever you serve for me I didn't even know who Jesus was at one point I was so confused and I'd been a Christian since I was young so for me, that was my relationship with Jesus is everything. You know this about me. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't even connect with the God who made me. So I, I couldn't think about sex. So it ruins our sex drive. It ruins our libido. It takes away natural parts of the body that God designed us for, right? Mm -hmm. I couldn't think about so many things that we should be able to express and feel as human beings. Yeah. And I felt a lot of anhedonia. Could only feel the bad. I couldn't feel anything good. I was just emotionally and mentally blunted for so long. And I do remember being, um, when you come in with a more chronic um, condition or you're, you know, you're sicker than before, there is a point to where people lose their patience. And I noticed that I would get treated a lot, uh, a lot less with compassion. And it was more met with impatience and uh, or an inpatient attitude and a you only have so many minutes to speak to me now go sit down and they were grossly misrepresenting and misunderstanding what was actually happening inside my body mm -hmm. and so um, based on the diagnosis of OCD they would tell me I only had three minutes to talk to um, the nurse this time so I would then as a patient know that it wasn't fully the OCD because that was never my main issue but because they needed to put something on there for me to stay impatient, they put OCD, and that was something I had, but I was going through intense withdrawal, right? Yeah. So, but the, these are just some, you know, it's, it, it doesn't look like it does in the movies at all these places, right? It doesn't look like just yeah. four white walls or whatever. Sometimes you have a roommate, it just depends. But it is a very terrifying place to me, honestly. It is still hard, and I even worked in the hospital after this to kind of do some ERP therapy for myself, right? Um, but it was, it's very hard for me to even walk in a doctor's office to get antibiotics if I need them or, yep. you know, um, I start feeling like I can't breathe and I have massive panic attacks and dissociate when I step into a doctor's office, even if I know they're a safe person or, um, a hospital. And so let's just say I break my arm or I get in a wreck one day, I'm going to have to go to the hospital, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we do those things if we've been so minimized and then tortured in essence mentally and emotionally by some of these people who some of them had terrible intents mm -hmm. and intentions and were terrible to people and then others were just misinformed on the actual chron uh, chronicity of the the ailment right yeah and so how do you go into these places I used to feel like hospitals and doctors offices were safe places 
to me right now, they're not. And it's been that way for like seven years. Yeah. And so I would try to force myself to go into these places more, but the smell and the sounds and what I would see and feel and, you know, taste even, um, just that sterile smell that you smell or that, you know, you taste what you smell, you associate it, right? Yeah. I smell this, I taste the sterile stuff in my mouth. It's like, I get, you know, you accidentally get some hand sanitizer in your mouth. I don't know it's made it very traumatizing for me to be in a place that should be a place of health and safety as a safe oh, haven yeah. for patients. So I'm going to go forward. I don't want to talk about, and I've talked too long about me, but do you think <laughs> as a citizen of deep East Texas, cause I know what I think, you know what I think, but in your own words, do you think we have adequate care here in deep East Texas for mental health patients, whether they're in the field going to go into that patient role or whether they're a patient, a lay person going into, <laughs> going in to get help. Do we have adequate and sufficient mental health resources to actually get the help that we need to, um, to go into remission? What do you think? Um, honestly, I would like to compare it to having a cup. <laughs> no, all right, for, go for, ahead. For, go for real. When somebody comes up to you and they're like, here, and you're like, I'm thirsty. Right. I'm thirsty. Someone comes up to you and they're like, here, here's a cup. Right. And you take the cup and you're like, thanks. Thanks for this cup. And you go and you, you look and you drink it and you're like, wait, there's, there's no water. And the person's like, no, but I got you the cup. Right. I feel like that is the equivalent to how the help is in deep east Texas, wow. where it's where wow. people it's like they have opportunities so to say quote unquote but they're all empty it's like yes technically you gave me something i needed a portion but the the main component the the thing that i truly needed wasn't there right it was like you gave me the the thing to hold the help, but not the help itself. I thought you were gonna say it had some water in it, but like by the time you got to the bottom, it had like dirt, dirt and bugs, and you know all kinds of um, rodents in there mm -hmm. or whatever. Because that's how I feel. <laughs> but I've never thought about the cup comparison. And to be honest, sadly, that is what it feels like, and that hurts my heart so deeply because I know how hard it was for me and my family, and the trauma it's left, and the trauma your family probably mm -hmm. endured as well. And uh, although I don't they live in the area right but um just just people you've seen who have been yeah. hurting and and to me my my view on this is we don't receive the adequate training here in east texas as well in our education mm -hmm. and we don't see as many people and come into contact with as much um as much of these mental health crises as maybe a doctor in houston might and so they see this every day and they're op they have an open mind right we don't want closed-minded god complex type people we need people with compassion and care to do these things and really i think people like you and i who have had mental health um, experiences really um just with you know depression or anxiety or whatever it may be we really need to go into the field to help people because we are a huge asset to the field i think we're actually the the game changers yeah are the people who deeply feel you mentioned obviously we'll go into being an empath what does that mean to you? Because I greatly am an empath as well. And I think we're great game changers because we feel sensitively and we feel hypersensitively in, in a lot of things. And we take that hypervigilance and we'll go on to help a great number of people. If only people would listen within the field, right? Yeah. Um, so what's an empath? I feel like an empath to be an empath and to be empathetic are two different things. Because mm -hmm. you can be empathetic without being an empath. But a person who is truly an empath is somebody who, for lack of better words, just feels somebody else's emotions. And, and it's like this feeling that just projects off of either their body or the words and intentions behind what they say their behavior um it's just being hyper aware and hyper focused on that person and right. what they're projecting right 
because whether you're paying attention or not, everyone is projecting somehow, some way, to some degree. And people who are empathetic or who are an empath tend to be able to um, pick up on those cues a lot easier than the average person. Right. Um, but typically, um, to be an empath means to be able to feel somebody else's emotions without having any kind of relativity to the situation. So, like, they cannot be like, oh, I have also gone through that, so that is what makes me be able to relate to you in your situation and be right. able to feel the same thing that you're feeling. To be <clears throat> empathetic means that you do have that instance where you do have that connectivity with somebody and being able to relate to them in that situation being like oh well I also lost my job so I can be empathetic towards you being sympathetic means that you know I can acknowledge your situation even though I've personally never gone through it that's how I like to differentiate sympathetic and empathetic. But I like that, though, because that makes a lot of sense, and I think we use them synonymously a lot. Oh, it's and so mistakenly do it. And I've yes. done it myself as well, so I like that you broke down the differences. So you can be um, an empath, and you may show maybe sympathy or empathy, depending on the situation, and then you can be um, empathetic towards somebody but not be an empath, so they don't always work, mm -hmm. you know, all together. If you have never gone through it, then you're an empath on that situation. Right, right. But if you have gone through it, then you're just being empathetic towards that person's situation. Right. If you've never gone through that situation before and you hear about somebody going through somebody or something that they're going through, then you can be empathetic towards that person or sympathetic. Right. Depending. Well, I like how you broke that down. So going back to the cup analogy, because now I'm just really focused, hyper-focused on this cup. Oh, buddy. What color cup is this, and is it tall? Is it small? Is it... I like to view it as a blue cup. A blue cup? Is it clear, see-through? Can you not see through it? Is it kind of hidden? Translucent, because... Translucent, okay. You can see that it's kind of like one of those frosted clear glasses, you know? <laughs> it's a frosted clear translucent blue cup, baby. Well, yeah, you know, like, <laughs> so, like, when you hold it up, it has, like, the, the look of water, so yeah. you're like... Oh, okay, this is going to be water, so it fools you at first. You're like, oh, water, gee, thanks. Like when you go to drink Sprite, but it's a water, and you're like, oh. Yeah, and then oh, it, like, it hits you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you grab the cup because it looks like there's water in the cup because that's just how it's designed, and the light reflects it in a certain way that where it shadows, and it makes it look like water. So you're like, oh, yeah, thanks, water. But then when you inspect it further, you look closer, you're like, what the heck? <laughs> I'm really digging this because I've never thought about it like that before, maybe in different words, but never in that connotation. And so um, that being said, huh, we need to get us some better some cup better fillers. Cups. <laughs> some better cups and cup fillers um, that sustain people for long term, yeah. right? Um, so, but you're saying essentially if the, that were to look like it really needs to be the water, what people need. So we're just comparing it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, to water and we need water so meeting people at their basic needs and yeah. then getting to the deeper issues and mm -hmm. whatever's going on and meeting and meeting them there um, so that's I really like that um, I think I almost got chill bumps um, so do you so you don't think we have adequate care here for me I personally think we need people from larger cities to come in and make a change oh, and yeah, I, that sure. that is not to say that people here are stupid that is not what I mean by no. any means because we have like some, we need regulation, and regulation typically only comes from bigger companies. Exactly. Is there even care across all boards? So, like, when you go to one college, are you really getting the same education as another? We can say no. We already oh, know yeah, this. Sure. So, so um, somebody could spend a ton of money at an Ivy League school. No hate against Ivy League schools, and then they, you know, they learn all this education. Or somebody could go to SFA. Somebody could be just as intelligent there, but not have the same opportunities afforded to them. Or a different experience. A different experience, or you know, maybe they learn something from real life experience that maybe somebody at Ivy an Ivy League school didn't, or vice versa. And so, personal experience kind of trumps book knowledge. To be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, we rely too heavily on book knowledge and not actually paying attention to the patient and listening. Um, but, you know, even in nursing school, it's not the same everywhere, but you still get your, your associates in nursing and then your BSN, right? And then whatever mm -hmm. you want to do past that. I've seen it so many times, you know, people say, well, I'll go to this one because it's easier than this program. And it's like, should it not be at the same level? And how do we keep it at the same level? 
so that we can give the same level of care, yeah. right? It's like if you know that somebody who's going to uh, do brain surgery on you made straight A's because they actually cared and they're actually good at what they do and they're, you know, they feel sympathy for you mm -hmm. and they're kind and, you know, would you rather have somebody who makes straight A's or somebody who barely made it by, you know, touching your brain, the most important and vital <laughs> organ in the body, the slowest healing, uh, you know, and then and then you have people. I know I would pick the one that probably made straight A's, but you don't get to ask that. Like I feel like we should interview our doctors. You really have to, in an mm -hmm. essence. But um, and then I feel also that somebody can make straight A's but not have a heart for people at all. Yeah. And so they could come in with a terrible bedside manner. They could come in with a terrible attitude. They they could come in with a know-it-all God complex, mm -hmm. which really is their greatest downfall in any field that you go into. That could be a pastor who's been to seminary versus a pastor who, ha you know, it could be um, a teacher who mm -hmm. feels like they're more educa highly educated or it's really comes down to a God complex is what it comes down to in any field I've noticed. Yeah. And so this has no place though, especially in a pastoral role, but this has no place within the mental health care field. Oh, for sure. At all. Because if it does, go work at a prison. Yeah, like literally. just go work at a freaking prison and yell at people all day. I don't care. Gas them up, baby. But do not, do not. Don't when bring you it there. Yeah, don't bring it there because we can literally be the voice of life or death in someone's life, mm -hmm. right? We can make them go from having acute issues to chronic issues. From just words. From just words, and then the treatment that we give them maybe with medicine. So we really have to focus and be hypervigilant. And so I think the last question here is, what do you believe we need to do to bring better care to our area? So I think, and you kind of said something like the same thing, that I think we need people who have seen more of these cases who have you know, seen out of the norm compared to what we've seen here to maybe mentor, you know? And so um, I know Baylor came in, what was CHI, I think, here and mm -hmm. did something with the hospital setting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can believe what you want on that. I don't know if it really did any good, but um, <laughs> we're not getting into that right now. But what do you believe we need to do to bring better care to our area? So Deep East Texas and remedy the current model on a local level. So we'll think about, the, you can only like, Mother Teresa said something like what? You can't feed everybody at the same time, just feed them, basically this is in Amber's words, feed you know one sandwich at a time, change yeah. one life at a time. So let's not even think about the big field itself and all the, that encompasses that, because yeah. we talked about that, but what do we think about on a local grassroots level? What can we do to help our people here? In Lufkin, in Nacogdoches, in Tyler surrounding areas. Mm. more experienced people better people who have it in their hearts for the right reasons right better um, opportunities for low income and you know students like there's a lot of you know Angelina College and Lufkin and SFA here in town you would think that there would be more opportunities for mental health help than there were right and are so really it's just like more experienced people bringing the help that they need that we need right. to remedy this because other than that i don't see us changing anything really i don't either i see suicide honestly increasing if we keep the current model oh, i don't sure. want to completely destroy everything all the hard work that people have done within the field itself but I think we really need to get like-minded individuals and people who are intelligent together. Mm -hmm. And we need to bring our experiences and I think we need to bring um, our compassion together and realize there's no room for a God complex and get that straight out of the way before we move any further. I don't think everything needs to be destroyed, you know, throw everything out with the, uh, what is it, throw the baby out with the bathwater, what is it? Like that saying, oh, I don't yeah. know. Uh, I don't I know, remember what I don't know if we like... should be throwing babies anywhere. Don't throw babies, by the way, we're not supporting that. But. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> don't, you know, if it if it's not broke, don't fix it. But it, uh, it's it's broke. It's broke. <laughs> it's it's past broken, and our generation. I fully believe this, and I pray this over our generation every single day, that our generation would be bold, that they would be a voice for the voiceless, that we would take our own experiences that have been so severely painful, yeah. And when we've healed, that we would take that and be a force to be reckoned with. And I think that a lot of people count this generation out, and I'm just not willing to do that. Yeah. I am not willing to count this generation out. There are many brilliant minds 
who maybe don't have the same opportunities afforded to them and maybe they're stuck in areas low-income places like this and they're never able to get their foot out of this area to go and make that change maybe and go into the field but I do want to encourage people who are having those issues to reach out um, and find ways where you can you can get help not only mental health for yourself but uh, and mental health help but um, if you want to go into the field do not let money stop you do not let it because the payoff will be great in the end of actually helping people around us and um, we can help people daily around us uh, try not to do not give medical advice but uh, <laughs> try our best to get them to the right places they need to go and and uh, thankfully thank God I finally found someone within the field who has a brain and not only a brain but a heart yeah. right and uh, it takes more than having a brain that went to an Ivy League school to help somebody. It takes having compassion and sympathy or empathy or being an empath or whatever it may be. And this person's personality has also helped me as well. And then meeting you has helped me because I understand I'm not alone. And that if you ask a lot of people within the field, they're very disappointed with the current model. Mm -hmm. They are very disappointed but they're afraid to speak out in, in one regard because they might lose their career. They could be blacklisted and lose everything they have and they've worked so hard for. And so they can't really take care of their patients the way they need to if they were to truly voice what they really thought. I've heard from so many nurses and doctors in not just the mental health field, but the healthcare field on certain things. I'll talk to them about things and they'll say, Amber, come here. And they'll pull me aside and say, this is how it really is and something needs to change. This is bad. It's, it's so beyond bad and atrocious and it's unethical and they're pulling me aside trusting me and so we don't <laughs> I'm not gonna throw any names out to protect their careers okay but I've had so many people within the mental health field and just the healthcare field in general tell me the truth of what they truly believe mm -hmm. and they know I'm not gonna go anywhere with it they know it's safe with me and that is sad and that's got to stop because that does not allow us to progress but it allows us what Good regress regress and not in a good way because it's not really in the act of saving people's lives mm -hmm. right so do you have anything else that you want to add to it no i think that, that you can think of the way that you said it pretty much sums up the way that i feel as well um i think that until there is that change there is forever going to be that stigma and it's up for not only our generation but the next generation and the next generation to do something about it and then only after only after time will something happen. Are you worried? Because I just this thought just popped up. Then we can end this. But are you worried, like I am, or have a concern that if our generation doesn't step up and speak out and be the voice for the voiceless, that the next generation may not may not have either not not really what it takes, but the tools necessary to persevere oh, for sure. and to step out and speak up if our generation isn't even willing to have the guts yeah, to do it. For sure. Okay, so we I feel like there will out. be a little bit that of initiative, you know, because of how Gen Z was. Right. Um, but if we are not demonstrating that, then how will our children know that that's what needs to happen? You know, true, true. We learn we learn with model behavior. So if our children are not watching us be like model that behavior, they're not going to also do that. That's so if you want your true. child to do something, if you want future generations to do something, you have to do it yourself. Otherwise you're just a hypocrite. And yeah, and I we can all say I think we do not like hypocrites, but how often do do we are we actually playing that role of being a hypocrite exactly. so so I don't want to ever live a life full of hypocrisy and this is why I have to stand up and say something that the current model has to shift it has to shift and start from the ground up and we have to rethink what we've always thought to be true chemical imbalance theory or whatever mm -hmm. it may be we have to have to realize that anything is possible in conventional medicine that anything is possible with mental health that anything is possible when we give people drugs that change their brain, that anything is possible. Um, and we really, our greatest teachers are the patients themselves. Yep. And I don't just say that, and it helps because I've been a patient, but I don't just say that because I've been a patient, but because I've learned a lot from watching patients working in a, in a, a hospital setting, mm -hmm. right? I've seen the pain that families have had to go through that really were unnecessary pains 
that have ruined them financially, not only just speaking for my family, but ruined them financially, ruined their resume, ruined their, um, you know, <laughs> ruined a lot of years of their life yeah. and um, caused a lot of unnecessary and undue stress and chaos and, oh God, just significant pain that I could never, just soul crushing pain. Um, having to watch somebody you love go through that and trying to trust people but not knowing what to do. Yeah. And then by the time you finally find a good doctor, they're trying to undo everything the last person's done and they feel like their hands are tied. So really, um, I think that's important. Modeled behavior is more important. I've always said this, I'm an older sister, so um, I can say all I want, you know, to my brother and sister, you know, you should live this way and do this and this. But until I start to exhibit it or, hey, you need to go get help until I get help, the help mm-hmm. that I need, my brother and sister aren't going to listen to me. Just because it's human behavior, not because they're bad people. Yeah. So we've got to be the voice. And I encourage every single one of you listening, if you're part of, you know, the millennial generation or younger Gen Z or whatever's next to come, um, the millennial gap is pretty wide. I think it's some people went in their, like, late 30s, something like that. It's pretty crazy. Down to, like... I don't know my sister's age like she's well she's 26 it's a little younger than that and I'm like that's a huge gap who determined this but you know whatever let's let's take labels away um this generation and I'm I'm encouraging generations older than me people in your 40s and 50s you're not even old but you're older than us and wiser in ways but just have an opening and listening mind because anything is possible and and if you don't realize at this point in your career that patients are the only reason we should be doing this for in their families and that we should actually help in remission with their chronic illness. Um, It doesn't have to be something they live with forever. We need to rethink that model. We need to rethink depression as being a disease that just lasts forever. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, depression is cyclical and situational in many cases and can be mitigated if we have the proper tools and, and coping skills produced in psychotherapy. Yeah. Um, and so we don't have to get to that medicinal approach yet if we'll just listen to people. Um, so thank you guys for listening. Julie, I want to thank you again for just being on here because I feel like many people want to say these things, but they're kind of, they don't have the guts to say it. Um, and uh, more people are saying it. We're saying things that other people have said, but the more people that speak out, I truly believe, and the more people that act on this and practice this in their own clinical practice, and setting, I truly believe we'll see a positive change for future uh, generations that, you know, we wish we wouldn't have gone through, but at the same time, we're glad and grateful for mm-hmm. so that we can help someone else not go through the hell we've been through. Okay, of course. So thank you for that. I feel like I should insert claps here. Like, So, yeah, guys, uh, we're going to jump off of here. We gonna hop on, hop on, baby. Uh, but anyway, check out the next episode. Not really sure what it's gonna be about yet, but uh, check this next week, and I will have some more, um, some more material for you guys. Take care. Bye.